what routines have been beneficial in your life? What routines have been beneficial in your life? Some of us, maybe I should speak for myself, don't have a ton of routine. <laughs> Besides the normal, we'll get up at some point during the morning hours, maybe the early morning or late morning hours, and then get on with the day and go to bed as soon as possible so we can get as much sleep as possible because some of us like sleep. And then you get up the next day and you do it again. Sometimes we have routines that actually get us up at a certain time specifically and say, I'm going to get up and I'm going to pray. I'm going to get up. I'm going to read. I'm going to get up and I've got to go to work early. So I've got to get up at this certain time. Um, If you're someone like me, then you naturally cringe at most routines or new routines. Uh, You may think that in setting a pattern of living or establishing a new routine, that you are handcuffing yourself to other possibilities. Because if I start doing this and I set myself to doing this, then I'm no longer open to all these other numerous possibilities of what I could be doing with my life in those hours or in those ways. Right? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah? All right. Some people understand me a little bit. (laughs) Yes, I I get you. Some of y'all are... Type A'ers, your go-getters, you have routines. You live by routines. Now, I actually used to be like that as a kid. Um, my family might hear that and be like, wow, that's hard to believe. Um, I used to be like that. I used to set up my clothes every night beforehand and then get up at a certain time. And part of that was because I had a brother who lived in my room with me. And I wanted to not be like he was in some capacities. Who He was not a routine guy. And he just kind of floated around and did whatever. And I wanted to be a little bit more routine. And now that I've got Brooke to be my routine, I just let her fill that role for me. And I'm the other one in that relationship now. So that's how we roll. right? I, usually I like to say I'd rather keep my options open. Because if I keep my options open, then I'll have the ability to make changes. I won't get stuck in a rut. I won't just be doing the same thing the same way every day. But when you look at the evidence of it, it doesn't take long to see that the benefits of having a routine far outweigh the supposed freedom found otherwise. This is something Donald Whitney, the book we did uh, several months back, one of our books of the month, The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, he talks about having routines. He talks about the discipline of putting yourself in a pattern of living, a pattern of doing things to put yourself in a position so that you can allow God to speak to you. You can allow God to use you. You can allow these spiritual disciplines of the Christian life to impact you, to help you to grow in your faith. Setting a pattern or routine can help us move from potential activity to productive activity. Now, any routine, I think many of us probably have recognized in our lives, any routine um, can get monotonous. It can get boring. It can get stale, right? Especially for those of you who are still in school. It's, I mean, you know, ah, another day of school, and am I even going to learn anything today? Another day of school, and the same teacher, and the same thing. Sometimes it's work, and you're like, the same thing at work every single day. It's just another day of putting up with the same people and enduring the struggle of being an adult and having to provide. It can be difficult if a routine that you do doesn't start producing immediate results. Now, I've got a friend uh, who I work with in one of my many jobs, and he sometimes goes on a Snickers diet, 
And so he's currently on a Snickers diet. So his diet consists of um, a Snickers in the morning and a Snickers for lunch. And then he eats a sensible meal for dinner. So I think maybe that means, uh, I think it's 1,500 calories total is what he's going for. It's either 1,000 or 1,500. Um, and he's been on it for the last few weeks. And he has already lost like 11 pounds. And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, that's good. And he's done it before, and he's seen results from it. And it's like, hey, if I do this, and I can live with just eating a Snickers in the morning and just eating a Snickers for lunch, then hey, it works, right? I mean, sometimes you see immediate results. It's like, I lost 11 pounds in three weeks. Like, that's pretty good for about anybody. Now, for me, losing 11 pounds, I mean, I might start having to get on a feeding tube or something, but... um, (laughs) You know, sometimes we start getting a new routine, a new diet, a new fad, whatever, and we don't see immediate results. And we're like, ah, maybe this isn't really working. Maybe I shouldn't keep doing this. I'm not instantly gratified by this change in behavior, change in action. And so maybe I should just go back to what I was doing or what I was not doing. It can be difficult to really discern, to understand, is this beneficial? Is this helpful? Is this what I should be doing? Or not. When Barnabas and Saul in Acts chapter 13 were sent off by the church on their first missionary journey, it can be easy to just assume that the church just walked them down to the port and put them on a boat and said, Good luck, Godspeed. I hope you figure out exactly what you're going to do. With no plan in place, no structure, no expectation, no routine that they had set no pattern that they had planned for of what they were going to do. I mean, that's what routine's all about, right? Is It's all about understanding what we're going to do tomorrow and the next day, setting ourselves up for success by planning for the future. When we look at Barnabas and Saul, it can be easy to think, oh, they just kind of, they were told to go, so they just went. No planning, no structure. But I think we need to view it a little differently. It's no coincidence that as we'll read it again here in a minute in Acts 13, Acts 13, that they pray and fast after the Spirit calls them and sets them apart. It's no coincidence that the process they use to begin their first missionary journey that we'll see is the same process that they use in almost every other single journey throughout the rest of the book of Acts. It's as if they had spent some time understanding their purpose and coming up with a strategy. The pattern they set to begin their missionary work is the pattern they continued throughout almost every single one of their missionary endeavors. I don't think they just stumbled upon it. I don't think they just happened to see a Snickers bar laying there and were like, hey, maybe we should start eating this for breakfast and then we'll take another one for lunch and that'll be what we're doing. I think they planned it out. So what pattern... Should we set for ourselves? It's one of the things I want us to kind of think about as we're looking at this text today together in Acts 13. What pattern should we set for ourselves as Christians, as Christians living in this world, as people who are called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us? Let's read how this first missionary journey starts and see if we can come up with some ideas to answer that question, even for us as we look at the example set by Barnabas and Saul. Acts 13, I'm going to read starting in verse 1 through verse 12. 
that we're really going to mainly concentrate on verses 4 through 12. So Acts 13, starting in verse 1, says, Now there, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So these three words are what I want us to kind of think about as we go through this text and think about these things for ourselves. These three words, if you've been here before, you've very likely heard them. If you have looked at the front of your bulletin, then you have seen them. If you look over there at that logo, then you'll see them also. Gospel community mission. Gospel community mission. Three words I want us to think about, and I think we're going to see here in the midst of Acts 13 and this missionary journey. These words are not all separate ideas or concepts, right? They're not three distinct things that are separate from one another. They work together and flow from one another. The first one that I want us to look at is actually the middle one is community. The church at Antioch is together, right? So that's where we start out in verse one. They are learning and growing together. They're building each other up. They have leaders. They have these five men of diverse backgrounds, diverse skills and abilities. They have been given a gift by the spirit to lead the congregation, to prophesy and to teach, to bring new words from the Lord, to bring the word of the Old Testament into understanding, to help people to learn, to grow, to understand, to build them up. That was the role that they had. And this is what fret, this is what fasting and praying does together, um, or doing that together. What it does, it, it concentrates and directs our minds toward God together. It allows the Spirit of God an opportunity to speak to us together as a community and say, God, what would you have for us moving forward? We're being faithful in what we're doing right now, and we talked about this last week. We're being faithful as much as we can right now and what we know you've called us to, but we also know that there's more work for us to do. We also know that it's not just about us and just about our community. How can you use us? But they were together. This is the picture. They were together. They were fasting and praying and worshiping together. We're not meant to be alone and we're not meant to be isolated. 
The Spirit of God puts us with fellow believers in the context of a local church so that we can proclaim the gospel to one another. We can point each other to Christ. In our failures, we point each other to Christ and his mercy and forgiveness. In our successes, we point each other to Christ and his power and rule over us and over this world. We seek out the Spirit of God to lead us to build one another up in community and to send each other out on mission. Those are the tag words that we have. So in gospel, community, and mission, we say we proclaim the gospel, we build each other up in community, and we send each other out on mission. But we don't do this mission alone. We're on mission together. And that's just another aspect of community, of being together. We are on mission together. The Spirit doesn't typically send us out alone. The pattern in the book of Acts is for the Spirit to send us out together with others. In verse 5 even, it's not just Barnabas and Saul who are out there doing this first missionary journey together. They also had John, John Mark, with them to assist them. They didn't want to do the work alone, and they couldn't do the work alone. They wanted Mark to help them. They needed Mark to help them. First off, they needed the Spirit, and Luke makes that abundantly clear that he's integrally involved in this endeavor. So it's not just at verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's not just the work that the church is doing. It's the work that the church is doing in cooperation with the Spirit. So in verse 4, immediately after, saying that the church sends them off, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Well, who's sending them out? Is it the church or is it the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes, both. They needed the Spirit. And they needed the church. That's community. A group of people bonded together to encourage one another, to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to lift one another up, to carry each other's burdens, to build each other up. The primary way in which we do this, in which I think they did this, is to proclaim the gospel to one another. So again, these three ideas of gospel, community, and mission are are not all distinct, separate ideas. When we are building each other up in community, we are depending on the Spirit of God and the work of Jesus Christ that he has done on our behalf and pointing each other toward Jesus. If we're supposed to grow in Christ's likeness, if that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, that he wants us to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to mature manhood, like this is what God has called us to, to proclaim the gospel. Because whenever we find that the work we're doing is successful, we don't say, wow, look at us and how smart we are and how intelligent we are and how our strategy worked. We say, wow, the Spirit of God has gifted us and we have been faithful. And the only reason we've been able to even get that far is because Jesus has saved us, is because Jesus is the one who has redeemed us and forgiven us and shown us his grace and mercy. And so as much as I'd like to say, look at what I'm doing and look at what we've done, it's look at what the Spirit has done through us. Look at what Jesus has done in our midst together. We point each other to Christ. We remember that Jesus is better. That in every sorrow, in every sickness, in every victory, in every encouragement, 
we need to look to Christ. Things are going great in your life. Well, Jesus is better. Right now, things are hectic and awful in your life. Well, Jesus is better. And he's with you. The Spirit is there to comfort you. The same Spirit that's in me compels me to comfort you. Not with the wisdom of this world, not with momentary pleasures and distractions, but with the truth of the Word of God and the work of God that centers upon Jesus. We build each other up in community, and we do that by proclaiming the gospel to one another. We build each other up in community, and we send each other out on mission. So the goal of community is to proclaim the gospel to one another, those who are already in community with us. But an overflow of this is the God-given desire and command to go and make disciples of all nations. We have been commissioned. The Great Commission, it's a mission. We have been sent on mission. And that mission is not just to proclaim the gospel to one another in our midst, to those who've already heard it and already understood it and already know it and already seek to live by it, but to proclaim the gospel to those who are not a part of our community, who who don't know Christ, who don't know the truth, those who do not believe, those who have yet to hear. And that's what they do in verse 5. That's what it says when they arrived at Salamis. So that's an eastern city on the coast of Cyprus. So they sail, if you're not familiar with your Mediterranean geography, so like Israel, Syria, Antioch, where this church was, would be on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, right? So they go down to Seleucia, which is the port city of Antioch, all right? So just following along in this whole journey as we begin here in verse 4. They went down to Seleucia, so that's the port city. A port city would be a place where you get on a boat and you go and you travel onto the sea. This would be the Mediterranean Sea. There's an island in the Mediterranean Sea called Cyprus on the eastern side of that country, of that island, is this city, Salamis. That's where they arrived. And what do they immediately begin to do? They proclaim the word of God to those who have yet to hear. And they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And by default, this would have to be more than just a regular Jewish synagogue speech or exhortation. Right? Proclaiming the word of God, you would think that they had the Old Testament in the synagogues, right? I mean, that's just kind of understood and assumed. They had the Old Testament. They had the writings of Moses and the prophets. They read the word of God as it was already as part of their regular routine and their synagogue meetings. But what Barnabas and Saul are doing is more than just saying, hey, here's the Old Testament. Okay, great. Let's move on to the next place. No, they're saying this is how Jesus Christ has fulfilled these prophecies in the Old Testament. How Moses talked about there was one to come, a prophet who was like him from among the brothers. That's Jesus. They would say the prophets declared that there was a suffering servant who was going to come and die and be raised to life And that that person who was prophesied about hundreds of years earlier, we have now found out to be truly Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, this guy who lived and died and was raised from the dead to prove that he was who he said he was, that the works that he did during his life were not just a one-off, but they were truly evidences of him being the son of God in the flesh. And this is the proclamation that they would have had. 
Now you might think, why the synagogues? If Barnabas and Saul have been, and, and, and Saul especially, has been told that he is going to be the apostle, the missionary to the Gentiles, why would he go to the Jews? Because there's only, if you're going to, again, draw distinctions, if you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. These are two completely different groups. Either you're a Jew or a Gentile in the world, even now today, you could still say that there are two types of people in this world. There are Jews and Gentiles, right? So why, if Paul or Saul is called to be a missionary to the Gentiles, why is he going to the Jews? That doesn't make that much sense on the surface, And the reason why, I would say, is because part of the people who would go to the synagogue meetings would be Gentile God-fearers. And as we continue reading through Acts, and if you're not familiar with Acts, then you're just going to have to read it and pick it up over the next, I mean, the rest of this chapter and then the following chapters, you see time and time again that as Paul goes to the synagogues, it's not just the Jews who are there. It's also the Gentiles are there. Gentiles who are God-fearers. That means they have heard, they have seen something about God in their time and existence, in their time living, and they said, oh, maybe there's something to this. Maybe this God is the true God. Maybe I should follow and submit to this God as opposed to all of the other gods in the pantheon of Roman and Greek gods that I have to choose from. All the other gods that are in this world are nothing. They've done me nothing. I've seen nothing from them. But this Jewish God truly is the only God. And so maybe they've fallen short of going the full extent of becoming a Jew, but they still would come to the synagogues and worship with them because they knew, at least to that point, in their understanding, some level of the truth, that there was one God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, but they had yet to hear about Jesus. And so what Paul, what Saul and Barnabas are doing is they're going to sort of the low-hanging fruit They're going to these people who are waiting for the truth to be revealed to them, who are actively seeking out this God who they know to be true and his word. And they're going to these places where Gentiles are and they're saying, listen to us because we know the truth. We can interpret all of these prophecies as being true and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. And so... That's why they start in the synagogues. And it's also because if you read it like in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it clear that, and what we've seen already in the book of Acts, that God was faithful to his people by proclaiming the truth to them first, by sending Jesus as a Jew to give the Jews an opportunity to respond to God's Messiah in their midst, one of their own. And by and large, most of them rejected him. And as the Jews reject him, then it's the opportunity to go to the other nations and to say, hey, Gentiles, here's the truth. Will you accept this? Will you believe this? And so what Paul is doing is he's doing both at once, almost. He's saying, hey, I'm going to go to the synagogues where there are Jews, where there are people who are actively concentrating on following after God, And I'm going to give them an opportunity opportunity to hear the truth of the gospel message. And while I'm there, there's already going to be a section over here of Gentiles who are listening to this and are going to be excited 
for the fact that they too can know and understand the truth about Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes through him and him alone. These Gentiles sort of already have one foot in the door, kind of so to speak. They're already halfway there. It's kind of like when Jesus sends out the disciples in the Gospels and he tells them to go proclaim the good news. And what he tells them is to go find people of peace, to go find people who are already receptive initially to the message that you are bringing. This is a similar idea. You're going to the people who already are not hating you, the people who already are willing to listen, who are ready to receive the truth. This is what Barnabas and Saul are doing. And I have to think that as they plan out this mission, as they are being sent out on mission, whether they themselves came up with this idea or the whole church said, hey, maybe this is a good way for y'all to start this missionary journey. And really all of your mission work is to begin with the Jews, the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. And as much as you can, even, you know, killing two birds with one stone and do it at the same time by going to the synagogues first, the places where the Jewish people would meet and where some of those who attached themselves to this Jewish God would also be. I have to think that this was their plan, that they didn't just stumble upon doing this, that they thought about it, they prayed about it, they fasted about it. God, how would you have us to do this work? We know you've sent us to do it, and we're going to bring other people with us, like John Mark, who is a good assistant for us, who can help us. But what exactly should we do? How should we do it? And I think they came up with this plan, and they set this pattern that you see continued throughout. He does it again in chapter 13. He does it again in 14. Like, on and on and on, throughout the book of Acts, this is the pattern that Paul sets as he goes about proclaiming the gospel in new places that have yet to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had a plan. He had a strategy. And it wasn't, I don't think, just his intuition. I I don't think it was his intelligence. I don't think it was him having figured this out on his own. I think the Spirit had to have stirred him and probably him and the church at Antioch to say, hey, why why don't you do it this way? This seems like a good way to go about it. And that's what they do. So they are in community together. They're actively involved in obedience to making disciples where they are. We saw that in chapter 11, this church at Antioch. In the midst of that, they're fasting and praying, God, what else would you have for us? How else can we remain faithful and be faithful and proclaim the gospel? And the Spirit says, I'm going to send some of you out on mission. And so the church sends them out on mission. And their mission is to proclaim the gospel, which they immediately start doing on the eastern side of this island, Cyprus. And they travel all through the island to the southwest side, which is where they come 
in verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, so that's the southwest side. So they go all the way from the eastern coast to the southwest coast, all across the island. Then they come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So Bar-Jesus, if you're not familiar, so Barnabas is part of this group, right? So Barnabas, y'all know what his name means? Remember when they gave it to him in in Acts chapter 4? Yeah, it actually is son of encouragement because it's Barnabas. B-A-R, that means son of, okay? So Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. Now, we already read this, and so is this man truly a son of Jesus? I don't think so, right? And so whenever we hear Paul's rebuke of him, that's why I think he starts the way that he does. You are not, in fact, a son of Jesus, you're something altogether entirely different. And so what Saul, Paul, begins to do is to make sure that he is proclaiming the gospel fully and boldly. So, so they're part of a community, and they get sent out on mission. And the mission is to proclaim the gospel to people who have yet to hear, so that they might build up new communities of faith who then are on living on mission together, proclaiming the gospel to one another and to those around them who have yet to hear. And this cycle, this pattern just continues to repeat. And one of the things that has to happen when you're proclaiming the gospel is you have to be able, you have to be ready to defend the gospel, to know the gospel well enough to know what's not the gospel, to know the gospel well enough to know people who are anti-gospel, the people who are against you, and to rebuke them to speak against them, to debate with them as much as need be, to be able to defend the faith. That's part of the proclamation of the gospel is knowing it so well that you can speak it and that you can see whenever it's being distorted. And this is what this false prophet, this Jewish false prophet Bar-Jesus begins to do. He tries to lead the proconsul away from the faith. In verse 7 says, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So this guy, Sergius Paulus, is a man of intelligence. The man who was heading up this region, this island of Cyprus, kind of part of the Senate of Rome that had jurisdiction over this territory because it was a quiet and um, peaceful place. They didn't need a ton of soldiers, centurions, and the like, like they had in Israel because the Jews hated the Romans. The people of Cyprus were kind of like, ah, you know, it's okay. They're taking care of us. They're not charging us too much in taxes. You know, go along, get along. So this guy, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, summons Barnabas and Saul and is seeking to hear the word of God. But Elymas, this guy, barred Jesus, many names, and we find that even in the next verse, that people in this time go by many names. They have a Greek name. Sometimes they have like a household name. Saul would be his Jewish name, but he also had a Roman name because he was a Roman citizen and his Roman name was Paul. This magician has many names, but Elymas the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them and he's seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, all right, so this is two reasons we have this. 
why Luke gives us this information here right now. And really for the rest of Acts, we see him as Paul instead of Saul. One, I think it's, it's probably no coincidence that this is the same name as this Sergius Paulus. Like they share a name. Hey, look, I too am a Roman citizen. My, my name's Paul, just like your name's Paul. Hey, we got something in common. Maybe you can trust me because I am a Roman citizen, because I do know what I'm talking about, because I am a man of eloquent speech. I am an intelligent man also like you are. Listen to what I have to say when I proclaim the truth of the gospel to you. But the other part of the reason why is because we are branching off now explicitly into the territory of Barnabas and Saul or Barnabas and Paul speaking the truth to the Gentiles. This man would be a Gentile. He would be a Roman. The Senate of Rome put this guy in charge. He comes from a a wealthy family, I'm sure, a family who is in public service. And Paul, seeking to identify with his audience, is able to do that because he he himself is a Roman. His name's Paul. He begins truly and fully this mission to the Gentiles. And it says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at this magician. And he says, you son of the devil. So, you know, your your name might say you're the son of Jesus, but Jesus didn't have any kids like you. The people who are trying to draw those away from the gospel are sons of the devil. You are a son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Right? I mean, some of these words here are like the whole idea of you go fishing and you put out bait. Bait is a means to trick the fish into thinking that they're getting free food, right? Anybody with me on this? Like, I'm pretty sure that's how fishing works, right? (laughs) You stick the worm on the end of that hook and you're like, hey, look, there's a worm magically dangling in the water and I'm a fish and I'm hungry. But instead, as soon as you put your mouth around that bait, you're hooked. This is what Paul says about this magician. You are full of all deceit and villainy. All you want to do is ruin the truth and try to make yourself the man. Try to put yourself in a position to attain and to keep the status that you have found as a part of Sergius Paulus' entourage. He doesn't want to lose his status. He's got a good thing going as it is. And Paul sees right through it, and he calls him out. It says, full of all deceit and villainy, and you will, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I think it's interesting, and I, I don't know um, how much this is worth pointing out, but he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. It seems like people weren't next to him saying, oh, let me help you. It was, he has to try to find people to help him. He's in this entourage with this important guy, so that means there would already be people around him 
who hopefully would be a part of his little community and like him and want him to succeed in life and want to help him out in his despair. But he is left alone trying to find people who can help him. The people who were around him weren't chomping at the bit to say, hey, how can I lift you up? How can I help you? Hey, you're blind now. That's not good. You, don't, you have no idea where you're going. Let me help you out. No, he's having to try and seek these things out. This is what happens whenever we are people who are trying to puff ourselves up and raise us up to a level that we should not be at and trying to hold on as tightly as we can to the top of that ladder we've climbed so that we can say, look at what I've done, so that we can say, wow, look, I'm here, I've arrived. I've gotten to the point that I've always wanted to be at. And sometimes when you're at the top of the ladder, you find yourself alone, alone with other people who have also climbed their own ladders. And they're not worried about your ladder, they're worried about their ladder. They're worried about their stability. And if you no longer serve a purpose and function for them, they cast you out, they cast you aside, they forget about you. And I think that's probably where this guy, how he attained to that. When you're stepping on people to get to where you are, when you reach back out for some help, those people are going to be too far down there to be able to help you, to want to help you. You've stepped all over them. You've put yourself in isolation and not a part of a community that cares and loves for you. And maybe to some extent what Paul does when he makes him blind. I mean, I don't know if it was in fact Paul had the power to make this guy blind or if, I mean, clearly he said, you are going to be blind and he was blind. Did the spirit like secretly utter to Paul, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make this guy blind, you know, so you should say that. Uh, Maybe Paul had the power to do that. He had the power to do many other miracles. He had the power to exercise demons. So he probably had the power to actually put blindness on this guy. And I wonder if there's some level of sympathy that Paul has and says, just like I was blind back in chapter 8. But God used that to help me to see past myself and past my own ambitions and past my own self-perpetuity. That I was able, through the grace and mercy of the Lord, to come to the truth of the gospel. Maybe he makes him blind because it's, hey, like you really are doing wrong here. But there's an opportunity for you to know and understand the real truth and to live according to it. No longer how you've been living your life up to this point. Maybe this was an act of grace on Paul's part. This wasn't just judgment, but it is judgment. I mean, the hand of the Lord is on you. That's what he says in verse 11. Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. It's like what we read. You, maybe you're wondering why we read from 1 Samuel 5 earlier on. That's what it was with whenever the Philistines got the ark of the Lord. And the Philistines put it in the temple of their God. And they said, look at how we have conquered Israel. And then God's like, I don't think so. And, you know, the God just falls face first. And the priests come in and like, oh, this isn't right. I wonder how this happened. And they stand it back up. And then the next morning, 
not only does their god Dagon fall face first again, but his head is chopped off and his arms are chopped off. It's just his body that's left. And you would think that the Philistines at that point would say, wow, maybe the God of Israel is the only true God and we should stop worshiping this guy who can't even keep his head and his arms on. You would think that that's how they would respond and react. But us humans in our ignorance and our pride, we say what I already know to be true is the only truth that I can know. There is no other truth. I can't change. I can't learn something different. I can't get beyond the false self-preservation and love for self that I already have. I have to just discount any other possibility than, you know, I just need to get rid of this truth. And that's what they do, right? They, they, they say, okay, well, instead of saying we're wrong, they say, we just need to get rid of God. And that's what they do. They get rid of the ark and then they put it on another town. And what happens to that town? The hand of the Lord is upon that town. And judgment, the judgment of God is upon those people for staring, for looking, for having the possession of the ark. So there is a level of judgment that is happening. Like it happened in 1 Samuel 5, is happening here. Paul is judging this magician. He's saying, what you are proclaiming, what you are leading people to is false, is wrong. It's not right. In the proclamation of the gospel, we are making a judgment. We are saying that this is the truth, the only truth. We are saying that there is no other way to salvation. This is the only way. We are saying that all other faiths, all other belief systems are wrong. We're also saying that there is a wrong way to live out this Christian life. We're also saying that there is a right way. That you're not saved just so that you can then do whatever it is you want to do. You're not saved so that you can just go live by yourself and be content knowing that your final destination is heaven. There's a purpose for our lives. There's a purpose for which God gives us the gospel, for which he opens our eyes to see and our ears to hear, not, not just for us. Yes, it is for us, but it's not just for us. The gospel has been proclaimed to us and we've received it so that we can then be a people who reciprocate that for somebody else. That We can proclaim the gospel to them and we can encourage those others who are like us who are struggling in this faith, who are living this faith, who are trying to understand how can I teach my heart to believe that Jesus is better in these difficult moments of life? How can I teach my heart to believe that these successes I have in my life are not due to me and my intuition and my abilities and my intelligence and my skill? We're saying, look at Jesus. Give him the glory and give him the credit. And we're saying, not only do that in your life and not only encourage that in the lives of those around you who also believe, but then call other people to repentance and faith. Bring them into an understanding of the true and right gospel, of the only gospel, and what that means for their lives. For much of Acts... What it takes for people to believe is not just a proclamation of the word. For people in Acts, 
people who don't have the fullness of this word for them at their fingertips. What's required of many of the people in Acts is some supernatural act of the Spirit of God to show them that what is being proclaimed is in fact true. And that's what happens with Sergius Paulus. In verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So what caused him to believe? Was it the teaching of the Lord or what had occurred? Because it seems like he's astonished at both. He sees and hears both. What causes him to believe? Well, what he believes is the teaching of the Lord, but he believes it through the sign miracle of Paul blinding this guy that he's known for years that he had elevated to be one of his advisors, all of a sudden be left in darkness and shame. He says, wow, this really is true. There are actions to back up the words. For us, I think there's two things we can take away from this. For us, we can proclaim the gospel all day long, but if we're not actively pursuing a relationship with Christ, if we're not actively saying to the people we're proclaiming the gospel to that we need the gospel, that if all we're saying is, hey, you need the gospel because you don't believe, all the while acting like I'm good and perfect and right and I don't need to change at all in my life, what they're hearing us really say is, well, you're just trying to get me to do something that you yourself aren't willing to change, that you yourself aren't willing to abide by, that you yourself don't need. And if you don't need it, why do I need it? And so our actions, what we do, become a part of the proof of whether or not we actually believe the gospel. When people look at us and they hear us saying the proclamation of the gospel, I'm certain that many people are also at the same time asking themselves, does that person who's proclaiming it really believe it themselves? Because if not, why would I ever believe that? And I think on the other hand, it's important for us to realize that I'm not sure the sign gifts are really much around that more, especially in America, because we have the word of God in its fullness. We have the word of God as our witness to say, this is not just me coming up with these ideas, but this is what it clearly says in here. And this has been preserved for us for thousands of years for the purpose of us being able to look back and say, I'm not making this up. These things actually happened. They've been recorded for us and they've been handed down generation after generation after generation for hundreds and thousands of years so that we can point back to it and say, here's the truth. I don't, you shouldn't have to have a miracle right before your eyes. And, and I think back to Luke chapter 16. And there's a rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to Abraham's side, to heaven as it were. 
and the rich man is in agony. And he says, man, I wish Lazarus would just dip his tongue in some water and put it on my tongue that I just might have a smidgen of relief because I am in such pain and agony. And the rich man says, man, if only you would send back someone from the dead, like Lazarus, to show them, my brothers, my family, the truth of the gospel, as it were. If only maybe someone were resurrected to show that this stuff is true, a miracle were presented right before their eyes, then they would believe. And the response that the rich man gets is, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. And if they're not willing to listen to the word of God, a miracle is not going to change their mind either. And so I think we need to hold intention and balance the desire for the Spirit to do a work supernaturally as we proclaim the gospel to prove that what we're saying is true with the fact that the Spirit has preserved his word for us and that he desires us to use his word and that he'll speak through his word and that he'll use his word through us to change people's hearts and that the work that we truly are desiring for the Spirit to do is not a miracle that people can see with their eyes, but a miracle in their hearts where he opens up their hearts to receive and to understand the truth, where he opens up their eyes to see and ears to hear spiritually the truth of the gospel as it's being proclaimed. That is what I think our prayer really ought to be and should be. Because as much as we like to think in the tough times in our lives that, God, if you would just do a miracle right now, man, my faith would be so much stronger. And in reality, we don't need those miracles. And in reality, those miracles aren't always going to have the effect that we think they are. Because there were plenty of people in the Gospels who saw and heard and witnessed firsthand the miracles of Jesus and their hearts were hard the entire time. And they never changed because they were confident and sure of themselves even though they were wrong the entire time. And so I think for us, in this idea of setting a pattern of how we are to live as Christians, we need to be a people who are depending on the Spirit as we live in community with one another to build one another up Knowing that I, I, can't, I can't build you up. I can only, through the Spirit of God in me, proclaiming the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ to you, can I build you up. And that I can, I can have some physical actions that, that coincide with that. I, I can physically help you whenever I'm able to physically help you. But I'm doing that for a purpose, with an intention. To care for you when you're down. To know that you'll be there for me when I'm down. That spiritually, we need to be able to see that we are able to lift one another up, to bear each other's burdens, to carry one another, to encourage one another. All the while, depending on the Spirit, and that we send each other out on mission 
to proclaim the gospel to those who have yet to hear all the while, depending on the Spirit of God, because He's the one, He's the only one who can really open their hearts to receive. And, and we proclaim the gospel to one another and to those outside of us because this word is powerful. It's sufficient. It's enough for the Spirit to use to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. That's what Paul says about it. That's what the Word of God says about itself in its own witness over and over again. The Word of God is enough. The Spirit of God using the Word of God is enough. And so are we making this a pattern, a routine, an expectation of our lives to live in community, to proclaim the gospel to one another, to send each other out, to proclaim the gospel to those who have yet to hear, who don't believe, and to proclaim the gospel to ourselves, to know it fully and truthfully, to be able to defend it, to know what it's not, so that people aren't tossed to and fro by all the different understandings and falsehoods and ideas that are out there in our world today. This is a pattern that I think we we can have and that we ought to have. It's a pattern that Barnabas and Paul began their journey with. And it's a pattern that I think will allow us to be faithful to the work that God has called us to with one another, to one another, alongside one another, as we seek to make disciples of all nations. And so what's, what's your pattern of living going to be? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example. We thank you for the truth of what has happened even here in this first missionary journey of, of Barnabas and Saul. Lord, it's difficult to, to truly crave this sort of community where we are wanting and willing to avail ourselves of the work of your spirit in other people's lives, of opening ourselves up so that we can encourage and exhort and equip, but so that we at the same time can be encouraged and be equipped and be exhorted and be rebuked. So God, would you would you give us soft hearts, open hearts, hearts that are ready and wanting to to live on mission, to proclaim the gospel, to, to be vulnerable so that we might grow, so that we might see others grow, so that we might see others come to faith and we might defend the faith as once for all given to the saints. Lord, build us up and use us here in Abingdon through the work of your spirit in our lives and the witness of your word as we proclaim it. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.